from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we go through the live stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. Today's podcast was voted for by patrons and will be part two of Ted Kaczynski, The Unabomber. If you haven't heard part one, I think you should probably go back and listen because it lays the foundation for the rest of his story. So let's get back into it. Now where we left off, poor Ted had just been subjected to one of the more unimaginable and unethical psychological experiments during his time at Harvard. And even though he reiterated that he didn't feel this experiment affected him terribly, according to Sally Johnson, the forensic psychiatrist who examined Ted, he began worrying about his health. He began having terrible nightmares. He started having fantasies about taking revenge against society that he increasingly viewed as an evil force obsessed with imposing conformism through psychological controls. It was said that Ted would become overwhelmingly angry with himself because he felt he had no way to express his fury openly. He said, quote, I never attempted to put any such fantasies into effect because I was too strongly conditioned against any defiance of authority. I could not have committed a crime of revenge, even a relatively minor crime, because my fear of being caught and punished was all out of proportion to the actual danger of being caught. End quote. Now, outwardly, after getting his degree from Harvard, Ted enrolled at the University of Michigan, where he went on to earn his master's and doctoral degrees in theoretical mathematics by 1967. He was now just 25 years old. He had wanted to go to other more prestigious colleges, but they didn't offer him a teaching position or any financial aid. Michigan had, and it was as simple as that. 
There, he specialized in complex analysis, otherwise known as the theory of functions of a complex variable, which is the branch of mathematical analysis that investigates functions of complex numbers. And it is helpful with other areas of math, such as algebraic geometry, number theory, and so on. So very high-level stuff that I could never hope to ever begin to understand. One of his professors there spoke highly of his dedication to his work and study, but called him an unusual person. Another professor said, quote, It is not enough to say he is smart. End quote. It was during the year 1966 that Ted began having these intense sexual fantasies of being a female and made the decision that he would go through with gender transition. He did make an appointment to meet with a psychiatrist, but while he was literally in the waiting room waiting for his appointment, he changed his mind and abruptly left. Ted said, quote, I felt disgusted about what my uncontrolled sexual cravings had almost led me to do, and I felt humiliated, and I violently hated the psychiatrist. Just then there came a major turning point in my life. Like a phoenix, I burst from the ashes of my despair into a glorious new hope. End quote. But he was apparently enraged and thought about killing the psychiatrist as well as other people he loathed. He would later say this was another rather huge turning point in his life. In 1967, Ted wrote his dissertation, quote, Boundary Functions, which won the Sumner B. Myers Prize for Michigan's Best Mathematics. His doctoral advisor said it was the best he had ever directed. Another member of the dissertation committee said, quote, I would guess that maybe 10 or 12 men in the country understood or appreciated it, end quote. In 1968, he was an assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He later said, quote, Mathematics was just a game, and I wasn't satisfied in spending my life playing the game. I wanted to get out of the system and out into the wilderness, end quote. He would come into his lecture hall or classroom and teach, always facing the blackboard and not acknowledging any of his students, mostly ignoring any and all questions. Needless to say, he wasn't going to win Professor of the Year from his students. His focus was his disdain for technology and the many trappings of modern life. But work he did and saved up some money before leaving Berkeley in 1969 and moving back in with his parents for a time. Now, with regards to women, an article written by James Fitzgerald for Newsweek states, quote, Almost every woman he referenced in his writings would be described as a nice, pretty, and smart young girl, but before long she somehow turned on him or insulted him. Worst of all, she ignored him as if he didn't exist and went off with one of the, quote, cool guys. He wrote about having violent fantasies of wanting to murder or torture these women. These were personal writings that he never meant for anyone to read. While I think he never had the wherewithal or the personal confrontational skills to attack a woman, which is a good thing, I believe sexual frustration was the basis for much of the Unabomber's activities and actions." End quote. 
So the only part of that statement that I personally might not agree with 100% is that his sexual frustration was the basis for his crimes. I mean, sure, I think it was a component, but not necessarily the basis, but that is just me. It is said that he moved around a bit from city to city, working odd jobs. He was desperate to get out and away from civilization and out into the wilderness. In Ted's own words from the Netflix docuseries about moving near Lincoln, Montana in 1972, he said, quote, So I went up to Montana, and when I went through Lincoln, there was a little sign saying real estate outside. I said, what do you have around here that's really secluded? End quote. So I believe with the help of his brother David, they purchased a plot of land there. They built a cabin on the land that was 10 feet by 12 feet or 3 by 4 meters with no electricity or running water and his only heat source was a very small wood stove. This of course took most all of the money he had saved and it was said that Outside of menial jobs, he received significant financial support from his family. But, you know, Ted was finally happy, or as happy as Ted could be. He was living the self-sufficient life that many people are returning to these days, something even I am working toward, right? So he rode a bicycle into town when he needed things, and he was a frequent regular at the local library, where it was said that he read classic books in their original languages. Most impressive. But for the most part, he was completely alone in his tiny house, hunting, skinning, and cooking his meat over a fire. And the locals around that area have said that his particular lifestyle was not wholly uncommon. In one of his very extremely rare interviews, he talked about a neighbor that he called a, quote, real bastard that was a logger and owned a sawmill. Ted was less than thrilled about the air pollution as well as the noise pollution of this man's business. So Ted decided to put him out of business by putting sand into the sawmill, which would all but destroy it. It was an expensive fix, to say the least. Another story goes that some people with a cabin would ride their dirt bikes up and down the closed road that led to Ted's cabin. So he waited until the time was right, took an axe, and chopped holes into the door of this other cabin. He then let himself in, destroyed the inside of the cabin, and then defecated in their tub before he left. But when Ted was home, he read an endless amount of books about sociology and political philosophy, including the book, The Technological Society, which states, quote, the central concept defining a technological society is technique. Technique is different from machines, technology, or procedures for attaining an end. In our technological society, Technique is the totality of methods rationally arrived at and having absolute efficiency for a given stage of development in every field of human activity. The author argues that modern society is being dominated by technique, which he defines as a series of means that are established to achieve an end. Technique is ultimately focused on the concept of efficiency. The term technique is to be comprehended in its broadest possible meaning as it touches upon virtually all areas of life, including science, 
automation, but also politics and human relations. End quote. According to his brother David, this was practically Ted's Bible. Ted would later say about this book, quote, When I read the book for the first time, I was delighted because I thought here is someone who is saying what I have already been thinking. End quote. So Turk Kaczynski, his father, came and visited Ted and in his cabin, you know, many times, and he was quite impressed with Ted's ability to survive comfortably out in the wilderness. And Ted also wrote, like a lot. His writings would, of course, be found stapled to the walls of his cabin, piles of papers and notebooks. But he also began writing his very own manifesto. He was quoted as saying, quote, I hate the system, not because of some abstract humanitarian principle, but because I hated living in the system. I got out of it by getting into the mountains, but the system wouldn't let me alone, end quote. So he'd had just about enough, you know, of the neighbors and the very rare but still existing traffic. And in 1975, at 33 years old, he began sabotaging the outside area anywhere near his cabin, such as setting booby traps and committing flat-out arson to keep society away. In 1978, it was said that Ted very briefly moved to the Chicago area to take a job at David's factory, and it was during this time that Ted would send off his first known bomb. On May 25, 1978, a box addressed to an engineering professor at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, detonated, but it did not reach its intended target rather causing minor injuries to a police officer. He did sustain minor cuts and burns. Ted returned to his cabin after it was discovered by David that his brother was writing insulting limericks about a female supervisor that he had actually, albeit very briefly, had dated. She would later deny having any real romantic relationship with Ted. And because of this, David was forced to fire his own brother. Then nearly exactly a year later, he sent another bomb to Northwestern University where it detonated and injured a graduate student who also sustained minor cuts and burns. Five months later, in November of 1979, he managed to get a bomb in the storage compartment of American Airlines Flight 444 from Chicago to Washington, D.C., this one he had fastened a barometric device into that would detect the difference in air pressure for explosion. But the only injuries that occurred were 12 people who experienced non-lethal smoke inhalation. It was a faulty timing mechanism that prevented it from violently exploding, which would have, quote, obliterated the plane. He continued to send bombs. In 1980, he sent one to the president of United Airlines, Percy Wood, and he sustained severe cuts and burns over most of his body and face. The next year, he sent one to the University of Utah, but it was diffused before exploding. In 1982, he sent a bomb to Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, where a secretary was the next victim, sustaining severe burns to her hands and shrapnel wounds to her body. Some bombs he hid inside hollowed-out books, others in cigar boxes. 
Some he built very crude box cubes out of wood for the bombs, but all of it seemed to have a theme of nature, trees, and wood, and he did often add bits of wood or tree branch into his bombs. The FBI became involved, and he was dubbed the Unabomber, which is an amalgamation of the words university, airlines, and bomb. In 1982, another bomb sent to the University of California, Berkeley, his old stomping grounds, where an engineering professor sustained severe burns to his hands and shrapnel wounds to his body. And the FBI openly admitted that Ted was very forensically aware and very careful not to leave any real clues in what was left of the bombs. They knew he was patient methodical, and planned everything with laser focus. But then for three years, he was quiet. It didn't appear he had mailed or personally dropped off any bombs. But Ted was busy with more local things. You see, in the summer of 1993, he had been secretly testing a new explosion mix. But he was also doing a lot of distance solo hiking. Here's an incident he spoke of after his arrest. Quote, it's kind of rolling country, not flat, and when you get to the edge of it, you find these ravines that cut very steeply into cliff-like drop-offs, and there was even a waterfall there. It was about a two-days hike from my cabin. That was the best spot until the summer of 1993. That summer, there were too many people around my cabin, so I decided I needed some space. I went back to the plateau, and when I got there, I found they had put a road right through the middle of it. You just can't imagine how upset I was. It was from that point on I decided that, rather than trying to acquire further wilderness skills, I would work on getting back at the system. Revenge. End quote. In 1985, another Unabomber bomb wound up at the University of California, Berkeley, where another graduate student lost four fingers and a severed artery in his right arm. He also suffered partial loss of vision in his left eye. One month later, one of Ted's bombs was diffused at the Boeing Company in Auburn, Washington. Then five months later, in November of 1985, Two people at the University of Michigan, which again, Ted had studied at, were injured. A psychology professor suffered some hearing loss, and his research assistant sustained burns and shrapnel wounds. One month later, the first casualty, a computer store owner named Hugh Scrutton out of Sacramento, California, was killed by one of Ted's bombs. When Ted planted a bomb himself in Salt Lake City, an eyewitness saw him leaving one of the bombs. They described the person as a man in a hooded sweatshirt and sunglasses, and of course, this is the drawing we have all seen. He left a note in one of the bombs that did not explode that said, quote, You, it works, I told you it would, dash RV. And then Ted went quiet again. But it was only three years after his most recent bomb that it was discovered that Turk Kaczynski had terminal lung cancer. It was 1990, and Turk held a family meeting, though apparently Ted was not there in person to try to map out the future of the family. In October of that year, Turk took his own life by a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head in his own home. 
In June 1993, Ted was back at it again when one of his bombs detonated in Tiburon, California. He had targeted a geneticist who had sustained severe damage to both of his eardrums and lost three fingers. The very next day, a computer science professor at Yale University in Connecticut was the next victim. He received severe burns and shrapnel wounds, damaging his right eye, and he lost the use of his right hand. In December of 1994 and April of 95 would be Ted's last deliveries, both victims, an advertising executive at Burson Marsteller and a timber industry lobbyist, both succumbed to their injuries. In a letter Ted then wrote to the New York Times, he said he had sent the bomb because of the advertising executive's work repairing the public image of Exxon after the Exxon Valdez oil spill. So with this letter, we see that Ted was upping his game. His ego was getting ahead of him. One of his meticulous journal entries said, quote, I am no longer bothered by having crippled this guy. I laughed at the idea of having any compunction about crippling an airline pilot, end quote. Also in 1995, Ted contacted the New York Times by letter, offering to end his campaign of terror if a major newspaper or magazine would publish his 35,000-word manifesto themed around anti-technology that he called Industrial Society and Its Future. After much debate, the New York Times helped the Washington Post with the publication of the manifesto, and it appeared as an eight-page supplement to the Washington Post in September of 95. So, side note, guys. If you would like me to read the manifesto to you, because I know a lot of you really enjoy my voice. It's AMSR. You go to sleep to me. I freaking love that. So if you guys want me to read that to you, let me know and I will make a separate recording of that. I'd love to actually, but only if you want it. So let me know. Now about this time, Ted's brother David's wife began to become suspicious of the writings and everything involved and encouraged David to start looking into what his brother was up to. In the Netflix docuseries, she stated she had never really been much of a fan of Ted to begin with. After David read his brother's manifesto, of course not knowing immediately that it was Ted, he became, you know, a bit suspicious and decided to go through some old family documents and, you know, various things that had been saved that Ted had written, and that's where he found similar rants about the abuses of technology and worded things the same way as in the manifesto. And while the FBI was getting tons of tips, David himself hired a private investigator to watch Ted. Once the PI gathered enough information, Ted hired an attorney to get the evidence organized to give to the FBI, but there was one issue. Ted's family was terrified that if the authorities just descended upon him in his beloved cabin, all of a sudden, it might end in a very bad situation like Waco or Ruby Ridge. So to make a very long story short, David basically turned his brother in. Now, he loved Ted very much and had always looked up to him, but this, what Ted had been up to, was obviously unacceptable. 
The FBI assured David that Ted would never know he was the one that turned him in. Unfortunately, this information was leaked on the CBS News, and they had to arrest Ted quickly. He was arrested in his cabin on April 3, 1996, and as the rumors go, an agent walked into the cabin with Ted laying on his cot, telling him, we need to talk. So the contents of the cabin were a cachet of bomb components, a bed with rumpled covers, two chairs, a small table, a few trunks, a Coleman gas stove, a nail on the back of the door from which to hang a coat, and walls and shelves, just so many books, including much classical literature. But the biggest shock was the over 40,000 pages of written material, journal pages talking about bomb-making experiments, an early rendition of his manifesto, just so much writing. After his arrest, he was advised to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but he refused this. He then tried to unalive himself, but was not successful. A psychiatrist handed down a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. However, a forensic psychiatrist said he was not psychotic, rather had schizoid or schizotypal personality disorder. Now, this is where the fun part for me begins, right? Let's quickly discuss the differences between paranoid schizophrenia, schizoid, and schizotypal personality disorders. So paranoid schizophrenia really isn't used anymore, but it can play a role in symptoms associated with schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a chronic mental health condition where the sufferer can sometimes experience reality in a distorted way. Some experience symptoms include like hallucinations, delusions, broken or confused speech, and of course, abnormal behavior. There's a lot to this particular mental illness, so I'll keep it simple. The different types are paranoid, disorganized, catatonic, undifferentiated, and residual. And while it's tempting to place Ted in the paranoid type, he really didn't seem to believe he was being persecuted, pursued, or conspired against specifically. So, serial killer Richard Chase is a prime example of what schizophrenia would look like. However, Ted didn't believe anyone was out to get him, so to speak, so that first diagnosis really wouldn't be correct. Schizoid personality disorder is an uncommon condition where people avoid social activities and regularly avoid interacting with others. They also seem to have a more limited range of emotional expression. So a good example of this is Dahmer, as this was one of his diagnoses of three. People with this come across as dismissive to others and seem to not really want to form any bond or attachments to others. So this does seem to fit Ted much more closely. And finally, we have schizotypal personality disorder. Now, people with this come across as odd or eccentric, and they also have very few close relationships, really any, if any at all. It is likely that they just don't seem to understand how relationships form or how their behavior affects others. They often misinterpret the motives of others, which can lead to significant mistrust of others. This may lead to severe anxiety and a tendency to avoid social situations as the person with schizotypal personality disorder tends to hold peculiar beliefs and may have difficulty with responding appropriately to social cues. 
So when thinking about Ted, this could fit him as well, perhaps not quite as closely as schizoid, but enough that I agree with the second psychiatrist's assessment of him. So I hope that made sense. But alas, even with these diagnoses, he was deemed competent to stand trial. The death penalty had been on the table, but he agreed to plead guilty to all charges to avoid that. He was ultimately given eight life sentences. And the U.S. government seized his cabin, which they put on display in a museum at Washington, D.C., until late 2019 when it was transferred to a nearby FBI museum. So, some interesting tidbits. Ted was briefly looked at to be the possible Zodiac killer, though this has largely been dismissed. And yes, the timing is such that it does coincide with his time in California. My thoughts are that Ted did these crimes from afar, right? Stabbing and shooting just seems a little too, you know, personal for him. So I do not believe him to be the Zodiac at all. He was also named as a person of interest in the Chicago Tylenol poisonings, but nothing really came of that. In his jailhouse interview from the Netflix docuseries, he said, quote, There are computer experts now that are quite seriously, in all seriousness, thinking of getting rid of the human race and replacing us with computers. They think we can download our brains in 50 years from now into computers and in this way attain immortality as machines. And I think a lot of people, other than activists, will be upset by that kind of thing. End quote. So, here are my thoughts on Ted. My thoughts on Ted are that, while not to his extreme level, I do feel like I understand his introverted nature as I am that way myself. It's easy to sit here on the floor, I'm literally doing it now, of my small clothes closet, the most soundproof room in my house, alone and speak into a microphone to read to you the stories that I have already written. There is a degree of separation there. But it is quite another to be in a crowded space, knowing I should interact more with other humans, and yet feeling so anxious about doing so. The feeling of contentment with my own company and nearly preferring it, well, Ted and I have that in common as well. Feeling like the world is headed in a negative direction with regards to technology, yeah, I get that. And I think many of us can relate to him on some level. It's what actions he took that injured or killed people that separates him from the rest of us introverts. I can relate to feeling quite irritated when I see people clearing out beautiful forests to make room for blank acreage, the piles of trees just dying. It hurts my heart to see my own local areas, these beautiful big rolling hills being blasted out to make room for large highways, and how the red clay of my local soil makes the fresh, raw rocks look as though the earth herself is bleeding. So, a lot of his ideas are not lost on me at all. But we must remember that he is technically a serial killer. He wounded and murdered perfect strangers that did nothing to advance his cause. Nothing. Those lives altered or lost altogether were for nothing. It feels wrong to have any respect for him because of what he did. It's just that 
I feel there is so much potential lost with him. You know, I hope you get it. Tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment or DM me on Instagram or come to Serial Killing a Podcast fan group on Facebook. We're pretty active over there. You can email me at SerialKillingInstagram at gmail.com. Again, let me know if you want me to read his entire manifesto. I would be more than happy to do that for ASMR, if anything else. But most importantly, as I always say, guys, thank you so much for listening. Because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that, guys. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.